Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, starting in verse 26. We're going to be going through, uh, through verse 40 today. And this it's all kind of one continuous uh, conversation between Jesus and the crowds. Um, the crowd, and uh, so it's hard to know where to break it up. So this breaking up at, at verse 40 is kind of artificial as well. <coughs> Um, although uh, this is this is where this particular bit of Jesus's uh, response to them stops, so uh, it um, it will continue on. Um, Pastor Ryan will pick up uh, here next week. Uh, join me as we pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. We, we do thank you for your word and the way that it has transformed our lives, and uh, we just pray that uh, today it would uh, continue to do so. That it would. Uh, give us uh, food to eat, and uh, that we might uh, live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Uh, we thank you, Father, for uh, the living word, the living word of God that came down from heaven, not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him, and that uh, he will then raise us up at the last day. Thank you, Father, for uh, the truth of your word, and I pray, Father, that today uh, we would understand it in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you. So in verse 25, they have just asked, uh, when did you get here? Right? So remember last week they had, they had gone, he had gone um, walking on the water to the disciples. They were on their way to Capernaum. He gets in the boat, but they, they don't understand that he's gotten in the boat. Um, or how he has, because they, they saw the disciples get in the boat. And so he, they asked him, um, when did you get here? And so this is his answer to them. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs. And the assumption here is you saw them and interpreted them correctly. But because you ate of the loaves and were filled, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will not certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. 
We begin where we left off last week in verse 25, when the crowd had finally caught up with Jesus at Capernaum, and they were in confusion because they, didn't see, they did not see Jesus get into the boat with his disciples to go to Capernaum. And yet, he had somehow already arrived in Capernaum with his disciples. Presumably, there was no easy way to get to Capernaum from the place they set out from, except by boat. We saw that John, in his depiction of the crowd that was following after Jesus and the disciples, that they are playing the part of Egypt's army in Exodus 14, seeking to, in some yet undefined sense, John's going to, John's going to lead us in their response, and the reason that their response to Jesus and their seeking of him is, is invalid in some sense. They are trying to keep Jesus's ministry from going ahead as planned by the Father, keeping Israel in Egypt, so to speak, and preventing his mission from going ahead, attempting to, to thwart the obedience of his Father, to exert their own power over him as if he had to give an account to them of his whereabouts or to give them a sign as they demand from him in this passage. They are attempting to somehow force his hand to make him king. This is actually, if we, if we step back and think about what the temptation of Jesus is, this is actually the ultimate temptation for Jesus. Kind of like Satan's temptation of Jesus, where he takes Jesus to a high mountain, showing him all the kingdoms of the world, promises to give them to him should Jesus worship him. It is the temptation to gain the right goal by the wrong means, to take the throne before the father has installed him as king. And in a way, his father hadn't design. And isn't this often the case? We often want the end without going through the appropriate means, perhaps a bit like playing the lottery or all the ways that we humans go after ill-gotten gain, like eating without working. I think there's a verse for that. All of you young people know it very well. You probably had it uh, recited to you. It's the temptation to get the goal without the means. That is a version of the temptation that Jesus is tempted with constantly, gaining the kingdoms of this world without doing it through the Father's means and in the timing of the Father. This, I think, is behind what is, what is often seen as Jesus is kind of elude, um, eluding the people that are, that are coming after him. It's not the way the Father designed it, and so he rejects it. He resists it. He resists taking the kingdom by force and all that that entails and takes it God's way. What is that way? It is the way of the cross. The cross gets at the source of the problem with Israel, with humanity in general, the Adam in us all, the flesh and its desires, sin with all caps, that power that is working in the world and against us all, sin that is seeking dominion over our lives in multiple ways over your lives and mine. He is going straight to the heart of the problem, sin and its result, death, and that can only be undone by his vicarious life-giving act, where God will condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus. It is this truth, actually, to which John, in this passage, is pointing. That flesh of Jesus and the eating of it, in other words, his crucifixion and our acceptance of that, that blood of Jesus and the drinking of it, is the only way that one gains life, overcoming death through Jesus' act, the one who has so loved the world. 
I remind you here that in John's gospel, it is the only gospel that doesn't have a Lord's Supper scene. The rest of the synoptics do. And this likely assumes that one, John has a knowledge of the other gospels and the Lord's Supper traditions. And number two, he incorporates the theology of the Lord's Supper, eating the body of Jesus and drinking his blood into the whole story of his gospel, rather than setting it apart as a particular event in Jesus's ministry. Jesus's ministry, his whole ministry is sacramental in that it is the obedient offering of his body to the Father as the means to redeem Israel and the world. It is in this way, too, that our bodies ought to be vessels of obedience, extensions of the ministry of Jesus into the world. That is what he does with the disciples later in the book. He makes them extensions of his own ministry. So we saw that John, in framing the previous events as Exodus and Passover events, is drawing us into a new Exodus story in which Jesus, as the new Israel, the faithful son of God, unlike Israel, is fulfilling the promise to Abraham and his descendants, his seed, his descendant, who would, who would lead the world out of a dark exile into the, land, into the land of eternal life, into the resurrection, into life. This is what he means by life. In other words, through Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that God would give him a worldwide family from all the nations is coming to pass. We will see this more clearly in John chapter 8. John tells the story of this new exodus and covenant fulfillment without most people seeing this line of thought, even though it runs straight through the middle of John's gospel from beginning to end. And many people don't want to see it because it means their interpretive framework has to be rebuilt from the ground up. But it is so rewarding that I highly recommend a complete redoing of how we've read, read the gospels through an understanding of the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament as Jesus' scriptures and the, and the scriptures in which Jesus himself found his own identity. Here in our current passage, <laughs> verses 26 through 40, in his answer to the people's question about when he arrived in Capernaum, he returns to the theme of bread, or within the Exodus story, manna. The people who were following him to Capernaum were eagerly seeking him. And Jesus understands quite wisely that the people are not seeking him in truth. That is, they don't understand who he truly is, what he is doing, and the way that he is doing it. And they don't care to listen to his words about his true identity and his mission, or to follow him in doing it the, fa the Father's way. It is possible to say that one follows Jesus without understanding who he is or what he is doing. In that sense, the gate to life is indeed very narrow. So Jesus answers their questions uh, like the wise man that he is. He doesn't answer the questions. He ignores it. What he does tell them, however, relates to the sign he performed with the bread and the fish. He tells them this in verses 26 and 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God, has set his seal. His answer tells us several things. Number one, the sign that he is most concerned with is the sign that he gave to the people, to the crowd, 
not the walking on water sign that we saw last week. That was for the disciples who were being guided, who were being taught and prepared for the extension of his ministry in the world. He doesn't expect the crowd to know what happened there. He intends to keep them in the dark, in confusion, for he understands that they do not truly believe. Signs benefit believers, but they have little to no effect on unbelievers, except for their hardening. John is very serious about this truth, that signs don't benefit the unbelievers. And one has to look no further than Israel coming out of Egypt to see just that. And this is part of his point in his comparison of his uh, current uh, enemies with uh, those in Egypt, those coming out of Egypt. None of the signs that God performed through Moses had much, if any, effect on the Exodus generation. <coughs> they died in the wilderness. This is part of his point. Number two, there is an implicit assumption within Jesus's words that he means more than just seeing the signs when he says, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He means implicitly that they were seeking him not because they saw the signs and interpreted them correctly. That's his point, and that's his assumption. When we read this, it feels, uh, it feels like there is some incongruence here between what we have just read, where they saw and experienced the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, and then they began to seek him. Unless we understand Jesus' reference to seeing the signs as, as seeing them and interpreting, uh, interpreting them correctly as corners to his true identity and the mission that he has. In other words, they are misunderstanding what these events that he, what these miracles that he has done actually mean. Of course, they are following him because they saw the signs. They even asked for another one. That can't be the point of what he's talking about. The point is that the sign has to be interpreted correctly and they aren't getting it. They are not believing that he is the one sent from heaven. It's not that Jesus thinks that seeing the signs is enough. He clearly doesn't. And this is why he goes on to explain what the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 is about. Number three, he intends to explain the enacted parable of the feeding of the 5,000 by replacing the manna in the first Exodus story with himself in the second. And this is what he does. Here's how he does it. First, he generalizes the bread to be food by replacing the manna in the first exodus with himself in the second. He, he describes the action of the crowd in their seeking of Jesus as work. He generalizes the bread to food, and then he describes the actions of the crowd in their seeking of Jesus as work. Do not work, he says, for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. <clears throat> in other words, the feeding of the 5,000 was an, act, an enacted parable meant to recenter the focus on Jesus himself as the giver of the true food that a person must eat in order to inherit eternal life, to enter the resurrection. And he does encourage people, people to work for that, not in the sense of earning it, that was not a concern of Jesus or the New Testament writers in general, but in the sense of seeking the very source of life itself, the giver of resurrection, the one at whose voice those in Christ will rise and the risen dead will be raised and condemned on that last day, as we saw in chapter five. 
he tells them to work for the food that endures to eternal life. Seek to enter into life. Seek life in the giver of life. It's either that or we quit walking with him, as many of his disciples do later on in the next chapter. He then explains what it means for the work uh, to work for the food that endures to life. What does it mean to work for the food that endures to eternal life? He explains what that means in terms of faith. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. But we must read between the lines a little bit to discern what he means by faith or believing in him whom he sent. <clears throat> First, we can say on the basis of this story that though the people are seeking him, they are not going about it in the right way. He doesn't accept it. <clears throat> in other words, their faith isn't the type of faith that yields God's acceptance. There are several types of faith. Secondly, the type of faith that must be exhibited involves recognizing Jesus as the one who was sent by the Father, the one upon whom, <clears throat> the one upon whom God has set his seal. This speaks of exclusivity, a term that is not welcome in our, in our polite society today, but it is absolutely essential in Jesus' mind and in the minds, minds of the biblical writers. This one, Jesus, who stands before the people is none other than the one God sent, his representative, and therefore it is God himself speaking. They are one in purpose, in unity, in mission, and this becomes clearer and clearer as we move into his discussions with the disciples beyond chapter 12. And if one does not accept that he is the way through which access to the Father is gained, and therefore access to life is gained, then one cannot be accepted. God has set his seal on him and him alone as the one acting and speaking in behalf of God. When God said he'd return to the temple, in Jesus, God is returning to his temple. When God said he would lead his people out of exile through the servant, in Jesus, God is doing just that. <coughs> this is what it means for God to set his seal upon him. He is the authorized representative. And if they cannot accept that, they cannot have life. As John said earlier, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Listen to one of John's epistles, a virtual repeat of John 3.36. He's very serious about Jesus being the representative of God and being accepted as one with him, not apart from him. 1 John 5.12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Listen to how important it is in, his, um, in, in 1 John 2. Verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. They are intricately bound together. The oneness of God, the oneness of God in Father and Son, the two are inseparable. John is making it clear that faith is not simply a matter of saying, I believe in God. 
but I believe in the God who sent Jesus and who raised him from the dead. And therefore, I believe all that Jesus says about the Father and himself. This is the heart of the matter, and this is what is true faith. Many things, of course, flow from this faith. But what is of concern to Jesus and John at this point within his ministry is that he be accepted as God's true representative and his words be heeded. Getting this right makes all the difference. He is the true food, essential for life. Because, as Peter will say later in this chapter, he has the words of eternal life, the words that lead to eternal life that, if accepted, will get you into life. We see and hear lots of food gimmicks. Eat this, and you'll lose 100 pounds. Eat this, and you'll feel years younger, right? All your problems will go away if you just eat this or that. Of course, it's important to eat well. But most of us know that these diets are gimmicks designed to get your hard-earned money. But there's a food that you can eat, and this is the point. There's a food that you can eat about which Jesus does not lie, which will get you life into the resurrection. And it's the bread that came down from heaven, Jesus himself. It's not the bread that Moses gave, which the people were in Jerusalem celebrating at that time. It was the Passover, of course, all the while not realizing that they were like that generation in the wilderness, seeking a sign and yet not believing. Here they are with the Passover festivities and traditions fresh on their minds, celebrating God's historic deliverance from Egypt, longing, one would think, for a new exodus that would match what Isaiah says the new exodus will look like. And Jesus says, eat this bread, the bread of the new exodus that the Father is giving you. It is the true bread that comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And it seems they long for it until he explains what the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 meant, which up until this point hasn't been explicit. This is the interpretation of the sign. Verse 35, I am the bread of life, he says, one of his I am statements. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You have been given the bread of life. It is right before your eyes, and yet you do not believe. Ironically, the disciples haven't truly understood either, but they're hanging in there. They're continuing because God has given them to Jesus. This is a mystery. It's a mystery in this passage. God has given Jesus the disciples that he has, the ones who will persevere in following him, even Peter, who will go on to deny him and yet be restored. And Jesus knows this. He is confident that the Father will keep those he has given to Jesus. Why? Is it simply because he and the Father know one another so intimately that he is confident that his Father's will, uh, that his Father will do what he has said? Yes, but not in some detached manner, not in some scripturally detached manner. How is it that Jesus knows that God is faithful? The scriptures. The scriptures. He has believed the scriptures and sees himself within that fulfillment of the scriptures. It's scripture and its assurances of God's will and ability to create a family for Abraham and the works he is performing and their significance give him confidence that he is the one through whom the father is doing what he said. On this basis, Jesus can say in verses 37 and 38, all that the father gives to me will come to me. 
and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. God's electing purposes must remain within a scriptural framework, though they have often been taken from it. We should not go where angels fear to dread. We have no business making speculations about God's hidden will. What we do know, however, is that God will be true to his word. And God has promised a family for Abraham and for his, for his Messiah, through his Messiah, and has brought about that family through Jesus, the faithful son and king. And he will continue to bring it to pass. This is what I mean. We have seen that John's allusions to scripture and Jesus's, for that matter, from John 1 to the current passage, have provided the intended meaning of these passages. John has been subtly showing uh, how Jesus is the one about whom Moses wrote. And Jesus himself will come to understand that as well, or has come to understand that. These passages and God's power at work within Jesus have provided the assurance that is making good on his word. And Jesus grows, as, as Hebrews says. He learns obedience through what he suffers. Jesus grows in his confidence that God will give him a family as he has promised, since this is the ultimate promise to Abraham. This is what election is all about, a family. And Jesus believes God will continue to do it. Isaiah 55, 1 through 13, and its surrounding context. Chapter 52, 13, the final servant song in Isaiah. Chapter 54, the renewal of the covenant. These form the background of the beginning of John's gospel, where the word becomes flesh, and also the background of the coming down from heaven language that we hear so often in John's gospel. This is how Jesus comes to find his true identity. In Isaiah 55, 1 through 13, God says, my word will come down from heaven. It will water the earth and it will produce fruitfulness where there was barrenness. Let's read it. It's long, but listen, listen to the resonances with this passage and what Jesus has said thus far about coming down from heaven. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not <coughs> bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen careful, carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may have life. And I will, I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him, who is, who is him, David, a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the peoples. There's this new David that's going to come, and God has made him a testimony to the people, a leader and a commander for the peoples, the nations. Behold, you will call a nation whom you do not know, and a nation who knows you not will run to you. Because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Here are the terms. Here are the terms that we're going to see constantly throughout John. The Father is glorifying the Son. The time has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus sees himself as enacting this promise. He comes to understand that he is the one through whom these promises will come to pass. God has glorified this David 
even though David, historical David's been long gone, there's another king that will sit upon the throne of, the, of his father, David, and it is Jesus. He has made him a leader and a commander of the nations, the peoples. How will he do it? And what language should we use to talk about this enthronement, this glorification of the new David? 5510. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word. What was John called, Jesus called in John 1? The word, right? So, so will my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The word will succeed. What will it succeed in? Verses 12 and 13. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Go out from where? What's the imagery here? It's a new exodus. The mountains and the hill will, hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. What's this describing? It's a, a, a rebirth of the land, essentially. The mountains and the hills are going to break forth in shouts of joy. It's, of course, figurative language, but it's a way of describing the renewal of all creation when God brings about his promises. And all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign, which will not be cut off. This return, this exodus will be glorious. And Jesus is bringing it about as the word who came down from heaven. God's electing purpose. And this is what, we're, this is what I'm really talking about here. God's electing purpose by which he, he creates a family and Jesus's confidence in it stems from his confidence in the scriptural assurances like Isaiah 55, that new exodus will occur through him, that God's purpose according to election will stand because he is that word of God come from heaven, sent to accomplish what the father intended. He is the means through which the father confirms his promises as God's servant. Uh, Romans 15:8. Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing praise to your name. This is the glorious plan that God has in mind for Jesus and Jesus himself has embraced it. He was so confidently obedient to it that he would not waver in his mission, even, even knowing what was before him, death. Since it was precisely through death that he would accomplish it, that grain of wheat that he talks about later in chapter 12, falling into the ground, dying, that is what will produce an abundant fruit, an abundant family of all the nations for Jesus, an abundant fam family which will inherit the world in the age to come. This confidence in God's wise plan for the world is what the last part is all about. Jesus has come to do not his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. And that means two things. He will not lose anything, neuter, his family has given him. Nor will he lose anyone who has been given to him. This is important. 
Since, as we have seen, John doesn't simply have humans in mind when he speaks of God's plans in Jesus. He has all of creation in mind. Listen to the language. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that everything, this is 39 and 40 are going to sound very redundant. They almost say the exact same thing, but there's a slight difference there, and it makes all the difference in the world. This is the will of him who sent me, that everything, it's neuter in Greek, he has given me, I will lose nothing, but I will raise it up, neuter, on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that every one, masculine, who beholds the Son and believes in him who will, ha will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up, masculine again, on the last day. This language, also seen in John 1, means that God is doing more than saving souls through Jesus. He is redeeming the world. He is reconciling creation to himself through the Son. This is what Paul goes on and on about. Um, Colossians, uh, Ephesians, he, he goes on and on about God and first, second Corinthians, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's transgressions against them, because that the people are the first fruits. After that, according to Romans 8, will be the new creation. What will he do with these with those things and people that he has redeemed? He will raise it up and he will raise them up on the last day. This speaks of resurrection on the last day, the day when all are raised and judged. That will mean life for those things and those people that God has redeemed. There's a bit of mystery to that. What does it mean to live in a, in a, in a world that's been recreated? We don't know yet, but we know it will be something very glorious. And he is now reconciling through the Messiah, the world, the whole world, the cosmos to himself. And he will give it to those who are faithful to him. To wrap it up, it doesn't seem that what, what verses 26 through 40 should be the answer to what, what he says in 26 through 40 should be the answer to the crowd's question about when Jesus arrived in Capernaum. And it actually wasn't. He ignored it. Instead of answering it, he explains with the enact, what the enacted parable of the feeding of the 5,000 was actually about. It meant that the crowd is like Israel of old in the wilderness, working for the food that would spoil. How long would the manna last? That day, right? And then it's gone. They were working for the food that perishes. And he says, you are like Israel, working for the food that perishes. When Jesus, the true bread, sent from heaven, was giving himself to them and would give himself for the very life of the world. They weren't properly interpreting the sign. That's the point. They had seen it, yes, but they weren't interpreting it correctly. Following Jesus had come to mean getting things from him. Not following him at all costs as the very source of life. Not eating of the true bread, hungering after Jesus himself, as Pastor Ryan said last night. Regardless of their response, Jesus remained confident in his father's power to give to Jesus a family and keep it until the resurrection where he would resurrect this family in the last day and they would inherit the cosmos. And we can remain confident of that too. Our security rests in the father's purposes of election that he is accomplishing through Jesus. And we ourselves find our purpose 
in Jesus's mission, we too will gain the assurance of doing the Father's will and will gain life in the resurrection. This is the message of John. John is about life. Life is more than just living, strumming our harps on the clouds. It is a, it is a resurrection in which we will uh, one day experience in bodily form, where we will inherit this earth, but in all of its glory and in its renewal. Amen.